In the scripture passage that we'll study today here in Luke chapter 5, we find that there are controversies taking place within the church of that day, much in many ways like the controversies that we encounter in today's churches. Old beliefs and standards colliding with new beliefs and standards. And God wants you and me to know how we should respond to those kinds of controversies taking place within our church family involving these kinds of standards and beliefs and other forms of biblical doctrine. Now here, Jesus addressed the very serious matter of fasting. Fasting is a directive from God that had become a standard custom in the church of that day. And especially within the religious system that had developed over time by the scribes and the Pharisees. For ourselves, as we carefully study through these words of this passage that I'll read to us in a moment, I believe that God would have us to consider what seems to be two of the most important questions being brought forth in these words. First, God's real purpose and plan regarding fasting. And then also the controversies that can develop within the church when one group wants to do things one way and another group wants to do them differently. Follow along with me, if you will, as I read this passage, beginning in verse 33 of Luke chapter 5. And ask God to direct your thoughts about these words. Verse 33, Then they said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled. And the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. These are parables. And the Lord wants us to understand what he's saying within them. Now, folks, ideas and philosophies and religions, by their nature, they're filled with guiding principles that ideally then work together to fulfill a core system of beliefs with each of them. But unfortunately, as time passes, and as one person, then another joins into the mix, the basic guiding principles begin to change, whatever kind of organization that is. Most all of those people who join in initially, they are genuinely sincere, each desiring to do that which is right and in keeping with the core beliefs within that organization or that church that they are joining in with. But invariably, with each new participant, each new member that's added, they bring with them 
a slightly new and different emphasis until eventually many of the original core beliefs begin to show real changes, real changes. Religion is especially susceptible to those kinds of influences. Each new voice that comes onto the scene seems to be able to change it to some degree. We see it clearly in many of the pagan religions, but unfortunately, folks, it's also very true with our Christian religion. The core beliefs of Christianity have been so changed and modified over time that Christianity struggles to hold on to the basic infallible truths that are contained within our Bible. That's why we have so many different denominations. As each new denomination has been formed and as new ideas have developed, especially during annual denominational conventions, changes subtly seep in to the decision-making. Then also, as new professors are added to the seminary staffs, the new ideas that they bring with them are passed on to their students, those future preachers, and they're carried on out into the mainstream congregations, and then consequently into the hearts of local church members. Again, that is why there are so many different denominations, and there are so many different variations within churches themselves. May I repeat what I just said, because this is so very important. The core Christian beliefs that we have held so dear all of these years, they are truly changing on a very subtle but regular pace. Slowly, many of the basic infallible truths of the Scripture are being transformed. Transformed into beliefs that are not found within our Bible. And it's not as if those core beliefs are vastly different from the old ones. That's not the way it takes place. Dramatic changes always put up a red flag. And they cause people to back away from those dramatic changes. But those changes that take place slowly, over a long period of time, they seem to be more readily acceptable and they become a part of that church or that church group or that whole denomination. In an earnest effort to try to keep pace with the culture of this world, and that's where our churches are having the most problem. In an earnest effort to try to keep pace with that culture, Christian churches are almost frantic in their efforts to change and devise newer and supposedly better methods of Reaching the lost, that's a common expression. We have to think of new ways to reach the lost. But in those earnest efforts, too often churches and even whole denominations, they're slowly drifting away from the core beliefs and the truths that are found within our Bible. Now, how does all that relate to our scripture text for today? It's this. As Jesus came onto the scene and he began to preach his message of repentance and salvation, he looked very much like one of those people who was set upon changing the established religion that those Jews had come to know and to love. And he, in fact, was set upon doing exactly that. But the real truth was the changes had already taken place. Core beliefs of their religion had already veered off course 
They were very subtle, but they had veered off course over the many hundreds of years that had passed between the time of Moses and now the time of Jesus. The church leaders and teachers of the law during all those years had been cleverly inserting their own personal ideas and philosophies into the religious mix. And in the process, the religion that God had first given to them had been greatly changed. Greatly changed. Drained of all of its spirit and then filled back up with useless and senseless and spiritless activities. Jesus was simply going back and restoring the original tenets of their religion that had gotten lost along that way. And the religious leaders did not like what he was proposing to do. That was so in this very simple matter of fasting. Over time, the church fathers had so reshaped and remolded the simple sacrificial sacrament of fasting until it was no longer a truly worshipful experience. But it was now just another one of those required religious rituals drained again of God's spirit and then filled back up with dead customs and practices. Unfortunately, those rituals were all that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, understood. And they felt a desperate need to preserve them. And Jesus and his disciples were ignoring their traditions and ignoring their authority. And they said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And so do the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink freely. Note in those words, the efforts on the part of those church leaders to emphasize their point. They used John the Baptist and his disciples as examples. Now those religious leaders, folks, they by no means approved of John the Baptist any more than they approved of Jesus. But they needed what they believed to be a solid arguing point. And John the Baptist seemed to fit their purposes. And maybe they could drive a wedge between the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist in what they were saying. And so they asked, why do the disciples of John fast often? And they make prayers, just like the Pharisees do. But yours eat and drink. Why do you do that? Now later on in his dealings with these religious leaders, Jesus would become very strong in his rebukes. He would call them vipers. But here he was very gentle in his response. He simply explained the basic rule that should always govern fasting. And that being that the purpose of fasting is to bring a person closer to and in communion with the very person of God. That's the purpose of fasting. Jesus knew very well that he himself was God. And he knew that his disciples did not need to go through the rigors of fasting in order to bring their minds, their spirits, and their bodies and their hearts into a special communion relationship with him. They already were enjoying his presence. And it was also another way for Jesus to declare to the religious leaders that he was the almighty God. And to help these religious leaders understand the basic truths regarding this sacrament, Jesus used a word picture. I love the way Jesus uses word pictures and parables. He said, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. They will fast then in those days. Here Jesus was emphasizing the utter uselessness of fasting 
when it's done for the wrong reasons, done simply as a religious ritual. Let me say again that fasting, and, and please remember this, fasting is a sacrificial suffering that's done for the purpose of bringing a person's mind, their spirit, and their body into a special relational communion with the person of Christ. I would recommend fasting to you. And the fasting ritual that had been developing over time with these religious leaders, they had none of that. They had none of that. Fasting for them had been reduced to not much more than just a simple weekly ordeal of denying oneself food for a certain period of time. And it was generally devoid of any real and true worship. In these words, Jesus explained that it was not necessary for his disciples to fast in order to be drawn closer to him because they were already with him. A question. With Jesus then there in the midst of those religious leaders and even with the disciples of John, was it necessary for them to continue to fast and pray? And the answer to that is yes. That's because none of them had yet fully accepted Jesus for who he was, the Almighty God in human flesh. And physical nearness does not necessarily mean spiritual nearness. So they still very much needed to fast and pray in order to draw near to him. When I think of these religious rituals, I think of my Catholic friends who often will do the cross across their head and the chest, especially as they would walk into their church. Do they even know what that means? Do the majority even know what that means? Are they really praying at that moment? Or is that a religious ritual? that's lost all of its real meaning. It's just what they do. That's what was taking place here with these scribes and Pharisees with fasting. There was a certain time in the week that they would go for so many hours a day without eating. And they counted that as righteousness. But here Jesus was telling us that his disciples knew who he was and that they were already communing intimately with him. You recall that Jesus asked the disciples at one point, who did the people say that I am? Some of them said, they say that you're Elijah or John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He said to Peter, who do you say I am, Peter? Peter says, you are the son of the living God. His disciples knew who Jesus was. They were that close in communing with him. And they had no need to fast. Now, yes, as Jesus said here later on, he would be taken from them. He was speaking about the time when he would die there on the cross and he'd go back into heaven. He said at that point then, yes, they'll need to fast. But not now. Not now. This word picture that Jesus used also brought out another important point. It's not a beneficial thing to do or to practice or to make other people practice things of the Spirit without first having the Spirit of God within you. Merely practicing, mimicking religious traditions as the scribes and the Pharisees did, that gains very little or even nothing for a person's soul. That kind of religious practice is what is spoken about in Proverbs 16 where we're told that there is a way that seemeth right unto man but the end thereof is death. 
There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. And he also warned us in 2 Timothy 3 with words, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Those religious rituals, they had a form of godliness, but they knew nothing of the power within them. Some words, some ideas, some philosophies seem really right to us. And they have a form of godliness to them, just like this did with the Pharisees and the scribes. But because they don't have the actual spiritual presence of God within them, they're not able to be rightly discerned by the person who practices those kinds of rituals. When that takes place, innocent and unlearned people can be earnestly involved in all sorts of religious rituals, but gain nothing from it, either for themselves or for God. And unfortunately, that takes place with so many people who attend church. They come because they know they really ought to be there, or that's what they have always done. But do they come and sit within the pew and worship the Lord? People can earnestly be involved in all of those religious rituals, but gain nothing from them, either for themselves or for God. And in the process, they can hurt and they can discourage both themselves and others around them. Listen again to these words, this word picture that Jesus gave, beginning in verse 36. He says there, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new garment doesn't match the old. No one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins, and both are preserved. No one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires the new. And he says, oh, the old is better. Now, simply put, to force improper rituals and doctrines upon unbelievers or new believers can bring harm to them. And they won't know that, and maybe you won't know that. To simply add on more and more religious rituals and activities does not accomplish the will of God. Putting a patch on their old Jewish religious practices was not the solution, Jesus was saying. Putting a patch on your old Jewish religious practices will not be the solution. And for us to merely practice Christian habits and traditions without the presence of God's Spirit is not the answer either. To put new wine, listen, this is a wonderful word picture. To put new wine in old wineskins will burst the old wineskins. Our hearts and our souls need to be properly prepared by God's Holy Spirit before we're fit then to receive the real things of God. Think about that for a moment. Unless our hearts are prepared for the things of God, harm can actually take place within us. My thoughts go to the students that we work with at French camp. To merely require those young people to do religious activities accomplished very little. Now, yes, they might grow up and have a better moral character, a better behavior, but they will not receive any eternal benefits from their religious practices unless their heart is first prepared to receive those. And folks, that's sober for you and me also. New wine, those true things of God, 
must be put into a heart that is properly prepared by God's Holy Spirit. Else our old heart of stone will burst. As I've considered this kind of controversy and other kinds of controversies that took place in the early church, my thoughts have also gone to two controversies that are currently taking place within several of our church denominations today. As I mentioned a moment ago, our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, they are struggling with these very problems right now. The first is that I spoke about in an earlier message, that of focusing much of the efforts of the churches on being inclusive. Inclusive. But not only being inclusive to invite anyone who will come into the church. It's also a willingness to change core doctrines that are in these scriptures, core doctrines and beliefs from those within our scriptures in order to accommodate the new members. It's a real problem with that, folks. Our scriptures are infallible truths that never change. Now, the second controversy is the intense focus that's taking place these days upon social issues. Correcting what is considered to be past injustices towards, especially towards other races of people. Now, yes, yes, there have been injustices and probably even worse, far worse than most people even know or imagine. And right changes really do need to take place. The culture has given catchy names to those two social and political controversies. One of those names is woke, woke, wokeism. And the other is critical race theory, critical race theory. Both of those are focused upon changing what their proponents have deemed to be past wrongs against specific segments of our society. And they have powerful voices within those groups. And the powerful voices within that portion of our culture, they're not only making demands for change within the society at large, but they're also specifically requiring changes to be taken place within the Christian church with its beliefs and practices. It seems that some, perhaps many regular churchgoers, have actually bought into their ideas and philosophies. And they're convinced that church doctrines and church practices should change to meet those new purposes. And that has produced a real problem within many of our major church denominations. It seems to be causing our churches to focus an inordinate amount of their attention on correcting past wrong social philosophies They're not keeping their focus on the basic core tenets of Scripture. And that results in more and more social philosophy being inserted into the weekly worship service, into the sermons, and less and less gospel being preached. Social and political philosophy becoming a substitute for the precious words of this gospel. May I quote those scripture verses that I gave us a moment ago. There's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is death. All of those social changes that those folks want to be preached from this pulpit, it has some goodness 
to it. But it's got a problem. And then the other verse, 2 Timothy 3, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Love your neighbor. How are you supposed to love your neighbor? Are you supposed to accept everything that they think and say and do? Or do you turn back to the scriptures and say, what does the Lord have to say about that? Some words, some ideas, some philosophies really do seem to have a form of godliness within them. But because they do not have the actual spiritual presence of God within them, those ideas, those thoughts and philosophies are not able to be then rightly discerned and rightly applied. And there again, as I mentioned a moment ago, they can hurt innocent hearts and minds as people listen to them and then they get caught up in going the wrong direction. Innocent and unlearned congregations can earnestly practice all sorts of religious philosophies but gain nothing from them, either for themselves or for God. And in the process, they can be hurt and they can be discouraged in their religious pursuits. Folks, God... And his plan, God's plan is very simple. He wants everyone within a congregation to receive a new heart and a new spirit. Then they're able then to receive what he has for them from these scriptures. So he wants everyone within every congregation to receive a new heart and a new spirit. And then he wants to put his own spirit within each person. And then comes our responsibility, that of being faithful to surrender our whole heart to the tenets and the beliefs that are found within the gospel. And if we do that, if we do that, then we will respond rightly, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, being the Christian people that we're supposed to be within that social and political setting that we find ourselves in. Then we'll know how to react to each new change. Let me close with these words, Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says to us, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them.